Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you. We've already spent some time with you, but we're here to spend more time with you, to learn of you, to learn of your word. Lord, you know this topic is far bigger than me, and that it would, I would be a fool if I came here and endeavored to speak it without your help. I pray that you would come here and that you would manifest yourself, that you would hide me in the shadow of your wings, that you would speak through me, that you'd be with my hearers and the hearers here today, and that you would help them to hear your voice, not mine, and that if I misspeak, that you would help them not to hear that. Thank you. Please send your Holy Spirit to be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so diving right in, let's turn to Genesis. Genesis chapter 13, 14 through 17. And the Lord said, do you love that? When God comes down to talk to us, and the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it into thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the, of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it to thee. Now we know this region now, today is the promised land, right? That God has just promised to Abraham. God says, stand up and walk through the land. Look in all directions from the wilderness to Lebanon, from the, from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates to the great sea. It's yours. You'll have it. Oh, and, and your seed, you know, you don't have children, but your seed, they will... If, if, if someone could number the dust of the earth, which we know is impossible, then your children can also be numbered. And I'm going to give this land to you. You who are a stranger, you who have no land to call your own, you who have no children, that's what I'm going to do. It's just like God to make a big outrageous promise like that. Genesis 16, 1 adds this little caveat. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bear him no children. What did God just promise? I mean, God, have you forgotten what's, what's going on here? You've just made this big promise that this land between you know, the river of Egypt, the river of Euphrates, Lebanon in the wilderness to the great sea, that's theirs. And, and it's going to be filled with their descendants that they cannot even number. There's going to be so many. And he's a sojourner here, and he has no children. What are you making these big claims for? Do you know the feeling? Do you know the feeling of God promising you that the promise land is yours, that anything within it is in your reach, that he is going to bring forth in your life, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that he will bring forth the fruit of the spirit in abundance. And yet, even after he's promised all these things, we feel a little bit barren. And like we're sojourning in a land with a bunch of Kingdoms that are a lot bigger than us, like lust, or like fear, or like impatience. And we're like, God, you've promised this, but I don't see it. I don't see it happening. Do you know that feeling? I do. I've experienced there, that I've been there. You know, I cannot stand it when God is painted as like, hoary with age and dusty and rusty and a little bit 
you know, decrepit, and we don't do this purposely, but, but sometimes this sort of comes out as if, as if, you know, all the miracles that he's done, you know, we, we don't see that anymore. We know technically, at least in a, in a, in a group like this, that, that, that God can still do the same things he's done, that the warrior that threw down the walls of Jericho is as powerful today, but we don't see the walls of Jericho coming down, so something must be going on, and so we kind of reason it away by saying, yeah, God could do all those things, for sure, he could, but he, he doesn't very often, or, you know, at least we don't see it, and so we reason this away as if God's ability has not been touched by 3,000 years, but somehow his gumption has. Somehow now he's more content to just sit on his throne and, and, and watch what happens without being as, as involved in our life and experience as he was back then. Well, I, I despise that. I despise when God is painted that way. So I remember having a discussion with uh, our neighbors, my siblings and our neighbors. We were having a lively conversation, as we often do, about spiritual matters. And um, we got into the subject of God laughing, because I'm a firm believer in the fact that God has the most interesting personality in the universe. So we had this conversation about God laughing, because Ellen White makes this little remark about when Jesus was on earth, he was often known to cry, but he was never known to laugh. And we're like, what? You know, how can that be? Well, I think Ellen White's remark needs to be taken in context. She was talking about him being a man of sorrows. But because of that quote, we got into a discussion about God laughing. And um, there's actually only four references to God laughing in the Bible. Did you know that? Four references to God laughing in the Bible. And if you read them just quickly at first glance, um, none of them indicate like the way we would laugh, uh, something you know, like funny. I'll take you to one of them. Psalm 2. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Oh, I like the sound of that. I mean, how, how strange would that, I mean, like, how remarkable would that be to hear God laugh? But listen to the rest of it. The Lord shall have them in derision. Oh, dear. I don't want God laughing at me in derision. I'll tell you that much. But just why? Why is God laughing, quote, unquote, in derision? The kings go, go back to verse 2 and 3, Psalm 2, 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And God laughs. Whoa. Whoa. Not that God laughs that his creatures are rejecting salvation, that they're, you know, removing themselves from his beneficent rule. No. What God is laughing about is that somehow the... God's laugh is a laugh of profound strength, of unconquerable ability, a laugh that somehow, you know, the, the princes and powers of darkness think that somehow they can get around the muscle of omnipotence. God laughs at the absurdity of that idea. Somehow Christianity today is having an identity crisis for our God. Somehow we believe that God can technically do the same things he did once upon a time, but he doesn't quite do it anymore. And so when God comes down and makes these big promises, we're like, mm, I don't know, maybe. Or we say we believe it, but then underlying, we don't act upon it. But God laughing is not a God in an identity crisis. It's a God whose reign is unchanged, whose throne is immovable and eternal, who has all powerful, who is all powerful, whose ability is intact, whose promises are yes and amen, whose word is creative and redemptive today still. Listen to him. 
if you, if, you, if you do a search in the scriptures, how many times God says, I am the Lord? It's outrageous. I forget the exact number, but it's well over 100 times that God says, I am the Lord. This is no God in an identity crisis or wondering what he can do today versus could do back in the day. Listen to this. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Psalms 81.10. I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Isaiah 48.17. Behold, I am the Lord the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me? Wow. There's another time in the scriptures that God asked that exact same question. It's when he came down to Abraham many years after he had originally promised Abraham that he was going to give him you know, offspring as thick as the stars and said that it was going to come through Sarah. And God comes to Abraham in the middle of the day and he's like, and repeats the things like, Sarah, your wife will have a son. And Sarah's in the tent back a little ways, and she's like well into her 90s, and these things don't happen at this point. And Sarah's like, she laughs. She laughs when God says, Sarah, your wife will have a son. She laughs in the tent behind him. And this was God's response. And the Lord said unto Abraham, wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18, 13, and a year later, Isaac was born. How does this happen? How does this happen that a woman that can no longer have children has a child because God has said, is anything too hard for me? Let's, let's turn to uh, Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. And, 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 and the writer of Hebrews clearly spells out just why Sarah had Isaac. The Lord, no, through, through uh, Hebrews 11, 11 and 12, through faith, through faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Through faith, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Evidently the same woman that laughed in the tent when God came down and made this absurd and impossible promise judged him faithful. She reconsidered her position and judged him faithful who had promised, and Isaac was born. And then, oh, Genesis 21. I love this. Genesis 21, 1 and 5 and 6. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. Don't you love how the Bible emphasizes that? As he had spoken. And Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, listen to this, God hath made me to laugh so that all that hear me will laugh with me. This is the same kind of laugh that God is laughing. Not the kind of laugh that Sarah laughed when God came down and says, you're going to have a son. She's laughing in the tent back there in derision. No, faith laughs this laugh of triumph at the mere hint that someone suggests that God might not fulfill his word. Faith laughs. Preposterous. Absolutely preposterous. And then several hundred years later, when God had taken that boy and made a nation of him, he took 
this people out of Egypt, brought them to the land of promise, and uprooted 31 hostile empires and planted his people there. He started it in the days of Joshua. He wanted to do it in the days of Moses, and people didn't believe, so he had to wait. Then he did it in, started it in the days of Joshua, and then by the time Joshua got old, the people didn't believe, so he had to wait. And then he took this little boy named David, and this little boy that took God at his word, and he made him a king, and through him he gave Israel the entire land of promise, from the Nile to the Euphrates, from Lebanon to the Great Sea, because someone took God at his word. Now, this story is really familiar to all of us, right? My question is, do we take God at his word today? Do we think that the word of God is as sure, as immovable as it was when Sarah had Isaac? And that was quite impossible. I think we've all experienced God's love and care, signs of God's love and care in our lives. I remember one time we were in the motorhome and we were driving. I was, it was a little girl. And we were driving through a town, and there was this long hill. And at the bottom of the hill, there was a stoplight. And just as we came over the crest of the hill, we saw the light turning red. Well, nothing wrong with that. My father, who was driving, pressed on the brake pedal because you know, we're anticipating this light up ahead. And when he did so, the brake pedal went all the way to the ground, and the motorhome had no restraints, and it was going, going on. Our brakes had failed right there at the crest of the hill. Poor timing. So partway through the hill, there's this little you know, drive thing into a business. And we're like, OK, red light, motorhome, no restraints. Let's turn. So we turned in there, and the sign on the front of the business said, Brakes special, Specialty Center. And then down below, just Brakes. Our whole family was just like, whoa. That's God's care, isn't it? That is God's care. So we've all experienced little things like that. But I remember sometimes we've also experienced these dark nights where we wonder if God really does care. I remember one night that I was extremely discouraged, extremely stressed, extremely pressed by the details and pressures of the things that were going on around us. And I remember got, by the time I got into bed that night, I was so exhausted. And I got on my knees, and I was like, Lord, I want to ask you. I want to ask you for, for you to do something to encourage me at this point. I am so discouraged. But you know what? I don't want to ask you, because if you don't do it, it's going to crush out the last bit of open faith I have. What I wanted to do was ask God for a dream. Has anybody else here asked God for a dream ever? Or am I like weird? It doesn't look like too many of you have, but I think it's fine to ask because in the words of my father, the worst he could say is no. So I like to ask him for different things. Well, that night I wanted to ask him for a dream to encourage me, but I was like, I'm not going to ask because I don't want to be discouraged if you say no. So I like hesitated to ask God for these things because somehow our faith is so small, and we're afraid of losing it because we know these things about, you know, without faith, it is impossible to please him, and all these other remarks, these grand remarks about faith. So we have this little amount of faith that we know that God has given us, but we're afraid to do something with it because well, what if God doesn't come through? What's going to happen to my faith? It'll be crushed. It'll be destroyed. I won't have any after that. I want an epiphany. I want anything. If you don't answer it's going to crush out the last bit of courage I have. Somehow, we are afraid to pray specifically. We are afraid to take the kingdom of heaven by violence, because what if God doesn't come through? What God says he will do, 
when he says he will give us victory over every temptation, that sin will not have dominion over us, we laugh in disbelief. We're like, these cyclical sins have been in my life all along, and now you're telling me that it's not going to have dominion over me? And we have that little Sarah moment in the tent. Whereas then on the flip side, we come and we bring God these ultimatums that he has not promised. If you don't give me a dream tonight, how am I going to believe in you? My last bit of faith is going to go south. How does this happen? How does this happen? You know, that night what I should have done, and God was faithful to me that night. He didn't give me a dream, but God did encourage me through his word, through his word. But what I should have done that night is gotten on my knees and quoted to God his promise, like Isaiah 42, 3, a bruised reed shall he not break, a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth in my life, though I don't feel it right now. We have two options on where we can focus, on the truth or on ourselves. Either, you know, I remember, I remember last year when I asked you to do such and such, and you did not. How am I supposed to have confidence to ask you again? I remember when my great aunt prayed for her daughter to recover from leukemia, and her daughter died. I remember when this happened and when that happened and where were you and what were you doing and what's happened and, 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 and look at my life and look at the sins that have dominion over me. If your word has power, why am I like this? We can focus like that. We can focus on our own experience, our own crooked, failing experience, or we can focus on the word of God. You have promised this and you cannot lie. You cannot fail. As it says in 2 Timothy, you cannot deny yourself. I have asked. Okay, faith laughs in derision at the mere suggestion that God might not come through. Because he will. Because faith knows that he will. All the promises of God are yes and amen. Can you picture God? I I, I love this. Come um, in in my room. I have just like this it's a loft bedroom, and I have a window at one end, and it looks out. And when I, when I come in the morning to pray, I come to my little window, and if I look up, I can see the Milky Way. Part of the Milky Way is stretching. It stretches over, like, over our house at a diagonal. So I can see just a piece of it. And when I come there, I love kneeling there because it makes me feel so little and God so big. And when I come there and I start saying, Lord, can I have this? I love picture him being like, yes. Before I even get the request out, and then, you know, Christ is, like, behind him, Amen. Hallelujah. A predecided yes from God. I love it. The strength of Israel will not lie or repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. What does faith do? Let me ask you this question. What does faith do when waves are rolling over the side of the boat and Jesus is asleep? What does faith do? It goes to sleep too. Amen. It goes to sleep too. What does faith do when Lazarus has been dead four days and Jesus said, this sickness shall not end in death? You know what our tendency is to do? Jesus said, this sickness shall not end in death, and Lazarus is dead. It destroyed the last bit of faith I had. He's dead. God's word does not stand. If we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can say, this: get out here and go into the sea, and it will go. But we come to the point where Lazarus is dead, and we're like, If God had been here, if God had been here, my brother would not have died. Where was God? That's our immediate reaction. God's like, 
I told you the sickness would not end death. Expect me to do it. Expect me to do it even when Lazarus has been dead four days and you don't want to go by his sepulcher because it's starting to smell bad. You expect that this sickness will not end in death like your God has said. What does faith do when Christ says, go show yourself to the priest and your skin is still covered with all this white fuzz? Faith goes and shows themselves to the priest and finds that they are healed every time, every time. I remember returning from a weekend that had been focused on faith. My, my siblings and I and our neighbors, we had spent some time together and, and had talked and studied and listened to messages all focused on faith. And by the end of that weekend, I was so excited about this God that never once has defaulted on his word that I would like go to my, my little prayer spot in my room and I would just sit there and like, oh, all this excitement would come up inside of me and like I could not keep the grin off my face when I prayed because it was like, there is no way this is not gonna happen. Anything that is in these pages, and mind you, that is all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything, everything I need, it's going to happen because my God has said it. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that when, pardon me, that when God says something, it is as sure as the sunrise that it will take place? Now, of course, generally there is a delay. Why? To test our faith, to, 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 make us, to, to make us search our own hearts to see if we really do believe that God will do it like he did with Abraham and Sarah, like he did with Mary and Martha. God generally does this. This is his common God has done this for 6,000 years, but somehow when he does it again, though he has done it for 6,000 years, we're like, surprise, surprise, you must not be coming through on your word. And God's like, I've been doing this for 6,000 years, testing humanity's faith. And when Christ was here, he was like, when I come, am I even going to find faith on the earth? Because we humans have such a tendency to doubt God. Backup 2 says, write the vision. Make it plain upon the table so he can run who reads it. In the end, it will speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. Though it tarry, wait for it. Because it shall surely come. It will not tarry. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. You know, if you look at the, the, uh, the, Greek, uh, the Greek word that talks about the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, I love it. I love it. It's like it has, it, you know, it means to force, but it, it has this connotation of, of action, like crowding oneself into. Like, can you imagine little us crowding and elbowing our way past the seraphim towards God's chamber door? We're like pounding on it. I need to talk to you. You promised this. Are you coming through on it? No, you are coming through on it, not are you. You are coming through on it. And the biggest grin spreads across God's face and he's like, you need attention, huh? Okay, you got it. You got it. But so often we're like, oh, I don't wanna go there. What if I, you know, what if the seraphim turned me back? What if by the time I get to the door, like what if God's asleep? God is not asleep. And we don't think these way, we don't actively think that, but we act it. We act it. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The kingdom of heaven looks longingly for someone to elbow their way into the presence of God and demand of him what he has 
already promised. Dark, discouraging days do not make us feel like doing this. I just went through a season of those myself where I was struggling to know what God was asking me to do, where I desperately did not want to do things, and I knew that perhaps I was being called to it. And I remember somebody, uh, a, a mentor for me, um, when I was like midway in the middle of a sentence saying, I do not want to do this, they stopped me and they said, Natasha. I was like, yes. They looked me in the eye and they said, how big is your God? Big enough. Big enough. Big enough that any time we want to crowd our way into his presence, he will come true on his word. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Do we have cyclical patterns of sin in our life? Do we have fears that pop up from time to time? Do we worry about the future? Do we have the consistency that the word of God expresses? Has the stuff of the kingdom of heaven been planted in our lives? It has not. It's not the word's problem. It's not God's problem because he has promised us already everything. He has already given us every single promise he could. Everything that pertains to life and godliness we already have given to us and it's right here and it's ours to believe that the strength of Israel really will not lie. It is ours to laugh at the idea that you know, when somebody suggests, you know, the world suggests, your God does not, you know, you, you think that's your God. It's a paper God. It's an imaginary God. It is ours to laugh at that, to laugh at the absurdity. Let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's. Is, and Christ is God's. Everything is under the feet of God's people. What if we, as a people, rose up and took God at his word? The world would change. The world would change fast. God has not changed his modus operandi with his people. His people are still trying to decide if they should believe him, though he has never once proved himself unbelievable. All are yours, whether the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do not know why I doubt you sometimes. You've, given, you've never given me reason to. I don't know why I question you. I don't know why I have those Sarah moments in the tent where my heart reacts with derision to a promise of God. Though I never want to do that, Lord, sometimes my flesh reacts that way. Sometimes my experience says, you know, God, does, God is God really going to come through? And yet, Lord, I know, I know the truth about you. Plant it deep in my heart. I, I pray that you would plant it deep in the heart of everyone here, that you would help us to take you at your word. And if it tarries, we wait for it. 
And if it seems like the heavens are silent, we crowd ourselves up to your door. Help us to turn away from our doubt, for it is the most crippling thing in our experience today. Lord Jesus, today help us to believe you as we hear the messages, as we, as we sing, as we pray, as we spend time with you. Help us to believe every word you say, hang our lives on it, and come through for us, Jesus. We know you will. In your precious name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.